Father, as we come to your word this morning, we, we need to be aware of our need for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon our lives. We cannot truly understand your word, Lord, without your spirit and without your wisdom. We cannot, Lord God, truly worship you without your spirit. How we need, Lord, your Holy Spirit in our lives, not just for this moment and not just for this study, but for every breath that we breathe for everything that we do, for every thought that we think, and for every word that we say. Oh God, do not let us leave here without your Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, Father, that today as we come to your word that we will take hold on eternal life. That we haven't come here, Lord God, just to learn about you or to learn about things that pertain to you. But that we have come, Lord God, to meet with you, to strengthen and enhance our fellowship with you. There may be some here today, Lord, that don't even know you. But you've brought them here to give them that opportunity to look towards you and to know how much you have loved them with an everlasting love by sending your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to bring them salvation. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray, Father, for the needs of this body. We know, Lord God, that every family has needs. And I know that every family that is represented here today can come to your throne of grace to obtain your mercy and to find grace for help in time of need, whatever that need may be. But we especially want to surround uh, Lalo and Jaime Beltran at the loss of their father this week. Lord, that you would bring comfort and peace through your spirit to their hearts and their lives and to their families today. And we stand with them, Lord God. We grieve with those who grieve. We ask, Lord, that you would bring a a measure, a, a double portion, Lord, of your spirit to bring peace and comfort to them and their family in this time of loss. We pray that that their father has received you. There could be no greater assurance, no greater strength to know that he is with you. We pray for Pastor James as he is ill this morning. We ask you to bless him, encourage him. We pray for his granddaughter, Layla, who is going to be seeing doctors tomorrow. We ask your blessing upon Sam and Melissa as they 
take Layla. We are quite sure that you have the power to heal her. We commit her to you, Lord God, for that healing today. Grant us now your wisdom and grace as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14. We began in this chapter last week reading and studying about a very significant event in history, the first war that was recorded in history as well as in in the scriptures. A war between a confederacy of city-states and their kings, kings from the east, the area that surrounds the Mesopotamian Valley, Elam and Babylon, the primary city-states. They had in years past gone and, and actually overtaken the city-states of the Jordanian or the Jordan Valley around the Dead Sea. City-states that included Sodom and Gomorrah. And when those particular city-states had refused to continue to pay tribute to the Eastern Confederacy, they rebelled, they stopped <clears throat> paying the tribute. So, Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam, and the other three came back with their armies to reestablish their hold on this area and these city-states. In the midst of all of this, there was a dilemma for the person of Abraham or Abraham. He had really no uh, choosing of sides in this particular issue. He lived further west of all of that. He lived in what today is the hill country of Judea. But there was a problem and a dilemma. And the, the dilemma was that Lot, his nephew, had chosen to go east toward Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose those valleys and the plains of, of Jordan because of the beauty of it. But rather than just staying outside of the city, he goes into the city. And because of this war, Lot was taken captive. He and his family and all of his possessions. And so as we learned last week, Abram went after him to rescue him. And we covered that in the first 16 verses of chapter 14. But today I want to go back just a few verses and deal with a little bit of a deeper issue. Though we have a historical event, I want to deal more deeply with the spiritual matters, the spiritual issues. Those pertaining to Abraham as well as to Lot. But primarily those that deal with Abraham because he did win a victory, as we called it last week, a victory for an underdog. He took 318 men to pursue four armies that were holding Lot and he defeated them 
with 318 men. The underdog won. But I want you all to understand the extent of that victory. What that victory was over more than just the victory over armies just to rescue his nephew. And so I want to take us back to verse 13 and, 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 and read on because the victory is threefold. Abraham had a victory over three things that we're going to look at today. He had the victory over the weakness of the flesh. He had a victory over the wisdom of the world. And he had a victory over the wiles of the devil. Now, does that sound familiar? The world, the flesh, and the devil are our greatest enemies as we live a Christian life today. The root of all of that took place, of course, in Genesis 3, where Eve was tempted of of the serpent to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of that tree, it was, des- it was described as having a fruit that was beautiful to the eyes. The fruit of that uh, tree was probably very good for the strength of body. The lust of the flesh. But the serpent told Eve, God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit fruit because you see if you eat of this fruit you will be like him and it talks about the pride of life three things that John mentions in his first letter to the church the three things that are not of this world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life Well, Abraham had victory over those three things in our text today. Let's look at that. In verse 13 it says, And there came one that had escaped, in other words, a person that had escaped from Sodom, because that's where Lot was. And they had escaped and, told, and came to tell Abraham, the Hebrew, of what had happened to Lot. It says, For he, Abraham, had dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eskol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abraham. So they were a part of the 318 that went with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. They, they went from the, south, the, the most southern part of Israel, well, not the most southern part, but certainly in the southern part of Israel, of what is today modern Israel. And they pursued these four armies that had Lot, all the way to the northern part of Israel and even beyond, because it tells us in the next passage that Abram divided himself against them. He had his servants by night and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is in the left hand of Damascus. So he went beyond Israel into what is today Syria. And he brought back all the goods. The victory was won. We don't hear much about that victory other than the fact that Abram brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. In other words, he brought back the goods that had belonged to the people of Kedor Leomer and, and the four kings of that confederacy. And Lot. And Lot's goods. And Lot's family. And whoever was with Lot. And the, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return. 
from the slaughter of Kedor Laomer. That gives us a little bit of an indication of how powerful a military leader Abram was. It was a slaughter. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale, which literally means the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, and the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So Abram surely seemed to be the underdog in a battle to recover his nephew Lot from the clutches of Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, and the three other kings from the east, who had retaliated against the five kingdoms of the Jordan Valley, who had refused to continue to pay them tribute. Now, Abram was in the middle of a war in which he was not picking sides. From his vantage point, this war was of no concern to him. He was concerned with only one thing. This was the one thing that drug him into this situation. The saving of Lot and his family and possessions. And once he heard Lot was in trouble, he sprang into action as only a brother's keeper would. You remember that phrase, brother's keeper, don't you? We have to go all the way back to, the, to, to Genesis chapter 4, to remember a, a situation where Cain and Abel, brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, had evidently fallen into some kind of problematic situation amongst each other to the point that Cain killed his brother Abel. And the Lord came to Cain and he said to him, Where's your brother Abel? And Cain said to him, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the answer is? Yes. We are. We're to be our brother's keeper. Wasn't it significant that as we read the account of Abram going after Lot, that Lot is called Abram's brother? That was not only because Abraham and Lot were believers in God. More than that, Abraham 
was his brother's keeper. Because his brother was in danger, he had the responsibility to rescue him. We talked a little bit about that in the la- last week as well. The importance of saving, of helping, restoring our brothers who have fallen. And that's an important idea in our study this morning. There's something that I, I didn't share last night that I, I did share this morning in the first service and I want to share with you. As I continue to consider this idea of our need to help and strengthen and encourage one another, even to the point of rescuing one another when that opportunity arises, it brought to mind this quote that I had heard and read and wanted to apply here today. And listen, it comes from a 19th century Bible commentator named Charles McIntosh. And he wrote this. He said, the claims of a brother's trouble are answered by the affections of a brother's heart. This is divine. Genuine faith, while it always renders us independent, never renders us indifferent. It will never wrap itself up in its fleece while a brother shivers in the cold. I find find that quote to be quite significant. While being of genuine faith may render us independent of the world, it never, ever renders us indifferent to the pains and the hurts of those around us. Keep that in mind today as we consider Abram, the things that he says, and, by the way, the things that he doesn't say, because we're going to learn so much today from what Abram doesn't say, as much as we will learn from what he does say and what he does do. Because he stands as a tremendous example for us of a person of faith who, in his steadfastness, conquers the weakness of the flesh, conquers the wisdom of the world, and conquers the wiles of the devil, so that we might take those examples and apply them to our lives today. So let's look, first of all, at Abram's victory over the weakness of the flesh. Let's look at verse 13 once again. And it says, And there came one that had escaped... And told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. Someone comes and tells Abram, your nephew has been taken captive by Kedor Laomer and the other three kings of this eastern confederacy. Now, Abram could have found many reasons for not getting involved in the battle described in the earlier part of this chapter. He could have found many reasons not to get involved. Do you know why I'm saying this? Because a lot of times we come up with a lot of reasons why we are not to get involved in certain things. Now sometimes it's wisdom. But in light of the context of saving someone, it becomes an excuse. Because Abram could have rationalized from a fatalistic argument. He could have, what I mean by that is he could have rationalized by using words like this. He, he, could have, he could have made these kind of statements. That's why he said we're going to learn much about what he didn't say. Because he didn't say this. But he could have. Because a lot of times we do. 
He said this, or he could have said this. He could have said, if God had allowed the kings of the east to conquer the cities of the Jordan Valley, who am I to interfere? Who am I to get in the way of God? I live in the hill country anyway. I'm safe, and God knows what he's doing. Rationally, could have rationalized. This isn't my war. I don't like any of those nine kings anyway because they're all pagans. He could have argued from a position of prudence. You know what prudence is? Prudence is just cautiousness and discretion. Prudence is a good thing a lot of times. But when we argue from a position of prudence, a lot of times it's to rationalize. We've done it. Think about it. Because Abram could have said this. He could have said, hey, these kings don't even know where I live or even that I exist. Besides, if I attack any of these kings from either side, any of those kings, I'll make enemies of them. And regardless of who wins the battle, the victors or the survivors, they're going to come after me. I'm not getting involved. That's the argument from the position of prudence, caution, discretion. He could have said that. But there's, a, there's one more argument that I actually alluded to last time. And it is an argument concerning God's judgment on Lot. Because Abraham, when made aware of Lot's condition and situation, he could have easily said this. And I I kind of expanded on what I said last time. So this is a little bit more, you know, uh, it's a stronger argument here. But this is what Abraham could have said. He could have said, well, that serves Lot right. That serves him right. I mean, this has to be God's punishment on my stupid nephew Lot. He chose foolishly when he chose the plain of Jordan. And he was certainly acting foolishly when he settled in Sodom. I mean, he deserves what he got. That's all there is to it. Period. The end. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're like that too. Somebody deserves judgment. We pass it. As a point of rationalizing. That guy doesn't need my help. He needs all of God's help and I'm out of the way. Might sound spiritual. It certainly sounds pious. But it's definitely wrong. The wrong attitude. Once again, Abraham didn't say those things. You see, the weakness of the flesh could have suggested a thousand reasons why Abraham should not become involved. But Abraham truly believed God. He trusted the Lord with all of his heart and he won his battle with the weakness of the flesh. He was one who truly knew, who, who had that, that experiential knowledge of what God can do in bringing us out of that trust and confidence in the flesh. 
and, and Abraham here also revealed his selfless heart. Lot was his concern. You see, not too long ago, Lot had a, had a, had a, a bit of a selfish heart, didn't he? You see, he, he's one who could say, I've been there. Remember going down to Egypt with, with Sarah, who was called Sarai at, at this point in time. But he goes down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. He could have trusted the Lord, but he didn't. And he goes down to Egypt. And while he's on his way down there, he tells Sarah. He says to her, now listen, honey. Sweetie, baby, honey, pie. We don't really understand all the customs of these Egyptians. So what you need to do when we get down there is, is, is when we get there, tell them that you're my sister. Don't tell them you're my wife. Because let, let me tell you this. If you tell them that you're my wife, they're going to take you, the, the Pharaoh is, and, and they're going to kill me. So if you love me, sweetie, honey pie. Let them know I'm your sister. I mean, I'm, you're my sister. Let them know that. Let them know you're my sister and, and I'm just your brother. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to spare me. Isn't that wonderful? What it doesn't tell her is that they will spare him, but they'll take her and put her into Pharaoh's harem. Now, if he had been honest, he said, no, they're going to save me and they're going to put you in Pharaoh's harem. Isn't that wonderful, babe? What happened to Abraham, the man of faith? So you see how Abraham knew. He, he, he was aware of Lot's struggles. Lot was his concern. Lot may have been foolish. He may have been unwise to live in Sodom. But who of us is not at times equally unwise? Answer me that. Who of us is not at times equally unwise? You see why it's not a good thing for us to judge from a position of condescension. Abraham had himself been unwise when he went down to Egypt. But now, he is placing no confidence in his own flesh. No confidence in his own wisdom. No confidence in the flesh at all. Period. The end at this point. Listen. He was a farmer. I, quite basically, that's all Abraham was. A rancher, farmer. But he was a farmer who became a fighter. He was a farmer who had prepared himself and others to become fighters. You notice that the 318, they were already trained. The only thing he did was arm them. They were trained. That means preparation took place a lot sooner than we could have ever have imagined. Abraham was a saint who was ready to be a soldier for his God. And this is a reminder that this is exactly what the scriptures tell us that we need to be. Paul tells Timothy, his son in the faith, time and again, fight the good fight of faith. No matter what it is that you are, you need to be a fighter. 
There's a perfectly good reason why Ephesians chapter 6 is in the Bible. Because it tells us about the armor of God. And that we need to be clothed and dressed in the armor of God every day. But the scriptures also tell us that we need to be saints ready to be soldiers for our God. When it comes to the issue of confidence in the flesh, no one could tell it better than than the Apostle Paul because he could use his own life as an example. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, he says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That circumcision was a circumcision not of the flesh, but of of the foreskin of the heart. The cutting away of anything that gets in the way of our spiritual walk with God. And he goes on and he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying, I could have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And look at his resume here. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was a resume of his confidence in the flesh, not in God. Not in God that he would have said that he worshipped religiously as a good Jew. For he says in the next verse, in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, all of that was gained to Paul. On the level of the flesh, he says, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. My brothers and my sisters, I ask you, have you won Christ? Have you won Christ? Have you given up the things of the flesh? Have you given up confidence in the flesh? Have you won Christ? No answer. Thank you. I'm glad somebody has. We all should have. Our confidence is no longer in our flesh. It is in Christ Jesus. It is in the Lord who made us. It is in the Lord who created us and in His image who made us as we are today, above all of this creation. When it comes to the issue of being a good soldier, Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1-4. through Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What do you think you're strong in today? Some people think they're strong in getting around the truth. We need to be strong in the Lord. He says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, and shall be able to teach others also. You know who that reminds me of? Abraham. Abraham was, was prepared because he had already trained them, the men that he, that he used for this battle. He trained them already. They were trained and ready when the time came for them to be going off to get Lot. 
Verse 3, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not a soft pillow. There's a lot of hardness when it comes to walking in Christ. So take the perspective of a soldier. Because he goes on to say this. He says, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Well, who has chosen us to be a soldier? But the Lord himself. And with that in mind, consider what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, because he says, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul said this some 2,000 years ago, and guess what? We are closer now than he was then, and we know then that Jesus can come at any moment. Are we ready? Because our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, he says. The day is at hand. Let us therefore, because of the condition of this world today, because of what we see in the darkness of the world all around us, and the chaos of this world, and the, and, and the, and the confusion of this world, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Are there things that you're doing that are in the dark that the Lord says, give me that darkness, I'll give you light. He says, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. Don't give the flesh any opportunity. That's how we win the battle over the weakness of the flesh. Not giving the flesh opportunity. To fulfill the lust thereof. Three, three, three things, Christians, that you need to understand. Be strong in faith and courage, always. Never weakening or letting up. Don't let up now. We don't have time to let up. We don't have time. The Lord can come to die today, tonight, this afternoon, whenever. Are you ready for that? Folks, I'm not trying to be dramatic here. But the Lord could come at any moment. What happens after we walk out those doors today? Are we going to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? So we need to be strong now, courageous now. Secondly, we need to be alert to the crises that arise in the lives of others. Because it's not just about us. Paul tells us that quite a bit, especially in Philippians. It's not about us. We need to be alert to the opportunity to help others. You've got people around you. You can be their help. That's why we cannot sit in a church and say, it's about me. It's what I can get. It's what I can receive. It's what I can, you know, become wealthy on or become this or become that. No, no, no. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about His coming. He's coming and we need to be ready. But I want you to go too. So I hope I'm doing my part in bringing you the Word of God so that you can be ready too. But we have to go deeper. We do need to weep with those who weep. We do need to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we're not about ourselves. We're about one in Christ. Thirdly, be ready to help. Be ready to encourage and to lead the person to trust the delivering power of Jesus Christ. I want it to be so, so much just a, a, a normal part of your Christian life that when you face a trial or you face a 
a, 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 a major dilemma in your life. You're not picking up a telephone. You're not picking up a cell phone. You're not texting. You are going in prayer to God because you know that He can deliver you. You understand that? I mean, it's okay. It's, it's important to have uh, uh, mentors and it's important to have people that we can be discipling us and all of that. It's important. And keep it going. But you know what? When you face a trial, trust the Lord because He's the one who's going to deliver you. That's why we teach the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's why we tell you, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because a lot of the church today doesn't care about that. That's, that's why we tell you, listen... The cross of Jesus Christ. What, we concern, what we're concerned about is Jesus on that cross. Christ and him, and him crucified. That's the gospel. Without that, we don't have anything. So we need to be ready to help and encourage and to lead others. Every day, folks, we can invent reasons not to engage the enemy of our faith. Every day we can make excuses for not keeping our responsibilities to one another as our brother's keepers. Every day we can make excuses. Or, or we can do what Abraham did. Look at verse 14 of our text. Genesis 14. When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. That pursuit was not in a day's time. It was not in a week's time. It was a long trip. But they went after him. And he pursued and pursued. He stayed after it. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is in the left hand of Damascus. He showed his military skill, certainly given to him by God. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And that tells us the underdog won the war. But his victory was more over the flesh and the weakness of the flesh than anything else. Secondly, Abraham's victory over the wisdom of the world is seen in the next passage, but before we go on, or in the passage that we just read, but before we go on, listen to this. Let's consider for a moment what the wisdom of the world would have counseled Abraham to do. The wisdom of the world would have, would have, would have more, more than likely have di- dictated caution to him. At this point, because this, this person comes and tells him, listen, your, your, your nephew Lot was taken. There is some action to take, but, but listen, the, the world will say, but, but, but be cautious. It would have been something like this, the wisdom of the world to Abram. Abram, listen, maybe you need to open a line of communication to negotiate with these victorious kings. Send them a letter suggesting a ransom for Lot and his family. I mean, you know that money talks. You're a wealthy man, Abram. Money talks. Send Eliezer, your servant, and send him up there with this letter. 
So you'll pay a ransom. Just, just tell them that, and, and you'll get Lot back. I mean, you only need to speak the language, the language of money. It'll work. And since you're pretty wealthy anyway, I mean, that's going to do the trick. <laughs> that's the wisdom of the world. Just a small example, but that's the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of the world toward us every day. Now let's compromise a little bit. <clears throat> we need to compromise a little bit with the Lord. If the Lord is calling you to do something, I mean, let's really, really, really work this over. So, you know, because, I mean, it, 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 I mean, what is this amounting to? It's amounting to compromise, isn't it? And Abram would have nothing to do with it. Abram would have nothing to do with it. I mean, he would not hide behind some dull, boring expression, which we call platitudes. <laughs> Nor would he remain a passive pacifist. Because there was no time for debate. He needed to act at once, and he needed to act in the will of God. And I can tell you this. First of all, we're going to see that he did act in the will of God. But I can tell you this about Abram. Because he was a man who had faith in God and he trusted God, he was a man who prayed to God. Now that's an implication here, but nonetheless, men who have trust and faith in God keep a communication only with God and not with the world. He stayed in communication with God. And I'm sure he prayed before he took off with his 318 men. And it reminds us that every believer must be bold and courageous. Every believer must be prepared. Every believer, above all, must go into every battle, whether it's a moral battle or a spiritual battle or otherwise, we must go into that battle in the strength of the Lord. Not in our own strength and not in the strength of the wisdom of the world. I think we see this best in the story of David and Goliath. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because of the time we have left. But, but listen, you all know the story about David. David was a young man when uh, he was the youngest of his brothers. And uh, they were out there in, in, the, in the plains of Judea. Actually, the desert of Judea. Fighting a battle, the, the, the Israelites were against the Philistines. And the Philistines had this champion, uh, you, you know, he's a big nine-foot guy, Goliath. They didn't have the NBA at the time, but they would have liked him in there. And, and, and you know, Goliath was this humongous giant that, uh, that uh, just continued to taunt, just across the valley there, just continued to taunt the Israelites. Send me, guys, I want to eat them, I want to spit them out. I'm going to chew them up and spit them out before you. Bunch of cowards. What kind of God do you serve? I mean, he was being blasphemous to the God of Israel. And they were all, you know, sitting there on the other side, just kind of, well, this is, you know, who's going to, anybody go? You're going to go? You know, you, know, you good? You? No, I'm not going to. But, you know. And David is coming up here into the camp of the Israelites to bring lunch to his brothers. And as he's coming in, and, and uh, uh, he, he's hearing this giant just blaspheme God. And it's starting to stir inside of his heart. And he says to his brothers, I mean, who's going to go out there to get him? Somebody needs to go out there and get him. Oh, no, just shut up. You're just a little kid. Give us our food. Get out of here. Get away, boy, you bother me. 
But he was insistent. Something has to be done. He said, I'll do it. I'm ready. I spoke to God this morning and he spoke back to me. I'm ready. What do you got to take out there with him? I I got this little slingshot. I picked up five stones. I'm ready. Five stones. Yeah. Y'all know why he picked up five stones, don't you? It doesn't say this in the scriptures, but, 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 but you can kind of imply that there, uh, David had heard that uh, Goliath actually had four brothers. And, you know, so he's ready for all of them. <laughs> but he goes out there. And, and Saul sees him and he says, well, you know what? If you're going to go out there, put on my armor. Well, Saul was a big man and David was still a young man, but, but he wasn't as big as Saul was. And, and, and the armor was just too much for him. That's, you see, that's the wisdom of the world. David says, no, I'll go face him. And Goliath said, you're going to send this little kid out here? Gee, what have you guys come to now? Now, this is what David says to Goliath. Are you ready? 1 Samuel 17, verses 46 and 47. Mark these in your Bibles. 1 Samuel 17, 46 and 47. Again, David speaking to the giant. He says this. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now, what was that? That was not arrogance. That was confidence in the Lord. What Goliath was saying was arrogance. What David was saying was God is my deliverer. And God is the deliverer for Israel. And then he says one more thing. Verse 47. And all this assembly, and by the way, I truly believe when, when, when this is said, that he's looking back at, at the Israelites and saying, And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What is that? That's boldness in the strength of the Lord. That's the boldness and the courage that we are to have every day. When we face our Goliaths, and we will have Goliaths to face, folks. You may be facing a Goliath right now, and you can either cringe like the Israelites cringed before that Goliath, or you can take a stand like David and say, this day you will be delivered by God to me. In other words, my God will deliver you into my hand. We have to have that boldness in facing our Goliaths. What faith is there if all we do is cringe? You see, Abraham didn't cringe before an army made up of four city-states, much larger than his 318 men that he had. He didn't back away. He went after it. Are you ready to go after it? Because God is with you. By the way, that's the key here. The victory we read about in our text can only be explained in terms of God. 
What we read here in Genesis 14, we can only explain in terms of God. Because the Lord was with Abraham from beginning to end. We, we don't hear or see verbalized by God. Uh, what we don't hear or see verbalized by God to Abraham, we certainly see in others. We've seen it in Moses. We've seen it in, uh, in Joshua. We've seen it in David. We even see it in the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. But the same provision was available to the father of the faithful, Abraham. It was available to him. Whether we see those words or not, we know God was with him. God was with Moses in Exodus 3 when he was standing before that burning bush that was not being consumed. But nonetheless, God was speaking out of that bush. And this is what God says to Moses when he has already prepared him to go back to Egypt and to rescue or to deliver the uh, Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. He said, Certainly I will be with thee and shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And that's what Moses did. He went in by himself knowing that God was with him. He wasn't by himself because God was with him. But he went. You know, he didn't have troops and armament or whatever. He just went in and he brought the people out. Well, we know that. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. God will not fail Joshua. God didn't fail Moses. And he certainly didn't fail Abraham. He was with him. And getting to the way that uh, the Lord speaks of, of his being with his church and being with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, unto the end of the age. I will be with you always. Always means always, doesn't it? It always does. So when he says, I will always be with you, he never takes a vacation from us. Sadly, we sometimes take vacations from him. We can't do that anymore. We can't afford to do that in these last days. So we can have a victory over the weakness of the flesh and over the wisdom of the world. But there's one more victory that he has to have, and that's a victory over the wiles of the devil. And let's look at that reading from 17, verse 17 down to verse 24. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him. It's interesting now that they're coming back into the land, and the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abraham after his return from the slaughter of Kedor Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. And Notice this, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, this is interesting because who's Melchizedek? When did we meet him? And where's, where's Salem? Because we haven't seen Salem mentioned. Who is he? Where did he come from? But he's here. Let me let you in on a little secret. Next week, we're going to talk all about Melchizedek. He is that important for us to spend a whole time studying him. We are going to talk a little bit about him in just a moment. But, But folks, this is exciting to know who Melchizedek is. So, 
This is the tease. You better come back next week. You have to. And bring somebody with you. Okay. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. What does that sound like to you? Communion? You know what it sounds like to me? The cross. Calvary. Keep that in mind. And he blessed him. He blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. This is a new thing that we see God being called. The most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. What happened after the flood? When the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth went forth and went out into, you know, to repopulate the world, they were supposed to take the knowledge of God with them. But before you know it, nobody is, is remembering God anymore. And now they're worshiping idols. Abram was an idol worshiper. And this is a reminder. There's only one God. And He is the God Most High. And He alone is the possessor of heaven and earth. All right. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and He gave him tithes of all. Now, we'll talk about that next week too. Now the plot thickens. Y'all don't mind being a little bit late today. Good, good. Thanks for loving me so much. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. A little drama here, you know, just <laughs> kind of have to give a, get, get an idea that this isn't just another thing said to Abraham. Okay? And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He liked what Melchizedek called God, so he called him that himself. He says, I have lift my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which were with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. I will not. I'll get back to Melchizedek for just a moment. Because Melchizedek is one of the most interesting characters in, this, in the Bible, if not the most mysterious so it is best to study him in the context of the book of Hebrews, which we're going to do next week, where we learn that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll get more of the details then. Now, for our purposes today, we shall see him simply as the king of Salem. Oh, but we don't know where Salem is, but we'll try to... It's not in Massachusetts, because uh, <laughs> Massachusetts wasn't around, really. Well, they were there, it was there, but not there, you understand, you know what I mean. All right, so there's the king of Salem. All right. So, Abraham had returned with great wealth from the, his defeat of the Eastern Confederacy, and he was met by both the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Yeah, he, he, this was the, cult, the custom of the day. I mean, if you, def, you defeat an enemy, you get all their goods, and you bring it back, and become, they become yours. And Abraham and his 318 men, I mean, they defeated four armies, essentially, that became one army, but they defeated them, and, and, and they brought back all of the, all the goods. 
And it's important for us to understand that the wealth Abraham had been blessed with could either be an opportunity for sacrifice or an occasion for stumbling. But folks, that's the way it is for us. Whatever things that we may have in our life, we can either have it as an opportunity for sacrifice or as an, op- as an occasion for stumbling. Abraham took the opportunity for sacrifice. And what is sacrifice? In essence, what, is sa- what sacrifice is here is giving all the praise, honor, and glory to God for everything that we have. And submitting all of that to God's leadership. To God's direction. And that's what Abraham would do. You know that in the book of, of Hebrews, we are told that Abraham gave the king of Salem a tithe, which is a tenth. Just A tithe means tenth. And here begins the Bible's teaching on the sacrificial giving of your wealth. Whether giving 10% of income or of a, and or possessions is a law or not has been greatly debated over centuries. But when we look at all of the relevant scriptures, it seems that the Christian is to give joyfully, is to give regularly, is to give generously, and to give sacrificially to the work of the Lord. Now, for some, 10% might be a reasonable amount. For others, it may either be too little or too much. But the important thing in our text in Genesis is that Abram was more interested in giving to the Lord's work than in gaining the whole world. And that's the point. That was the point with Abram in his rebuke of the king of Sodom's uh, statement to him. And it was what Paul, uh, I'm sorry, what Jesus had given to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And you know this passage. In Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. But notice this, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange? For his soul. You know, nowadays we have instant, instant communication. We can, we, an instant education. We can learn so much in a, in a very quick time. We have an internet now that you can, you know, you can get on Yahoo or Google or Wikipedia or whatever and learn just all kinds of stuff. If we want to know who the ten richest people in the world are, you can look at that. Just, you know, type it in and boom, there it is. Ten richest people in the world. And you see how many billions and billions of dollars each one of them has. But every, any time you do that, you need to ask the question, yes, but where is their soul? Where is their soul? And what are they doing with all of that richness, with, with all of those riches? I want you to notice what the king of Sodom said to, to Abraham. He said, give me the persons. Do you know what that word persons there literally is? It's the word souls. You give me the souls and you take the goods for yourself. Now let me say that in in our text, we're going to learn next week more than this week, but we're going to learn a lot about what typology is in the scriptures. Types. There are types in the Old Testament that pointed things in the New Testament, or even to today. 
And so let me say that in our text, the king of Salem, who is Melchizedek, is a type of Jesus Christ. Because he's a king and he's also a priest. Jesus is a king and he's a priest. You see the typology. Well, Bera, who is the king of Sodom, he is a type of Satan. And this, this passage proves it, that he's a type of Satan. I want you to keep that in mind. Because what was said by the king of Sodom posed a, a serious threat to Abram, a threat that could have destroyed his witness uh, and ministry for the Lord. The temptation to compromise with the things of the world over and above the things of God. Again, did you notice that he said, give me the souls. If the enemy can get us to take the things of the world, he will gladly take the souls entrusted to our charge. This is what, what the enemy was trying to do with you so stealthily, so deceivingly, before you came to know Christ. Take the things of the world. Get as rich as you can get. Get as famous as you can be. Do all of these things. Do it all. But just give me your soul. How many people have sold out to the enemy just so that they can have riches in this temporal world? It happens every day. Folks, Satan doesn't sleep. He stays awake every day deceiving and deceiving and deceiving people into thinking, you don't really need Jesus. What you need is just, you know, you need a job or you need this. Or you, need you trust me, just give me your soul. I'll give you everything else. Is this not what he actually even offered? I mean, look at the audacity of Satan offering the very same things to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus had been 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, hadn't eaten anything. Satan comes and he says, you can turn those breads into stone. Jesus said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, you know, if you jump off this pinnacle here, your angels will catch you. He says to him, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Then he has even more audacity to say to Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. He says, get out of here. Thou shalt worship the Lord and Him alone. Every day, Satan wants to take a soul. You know, there were two things that Abraham could have done. He could have kept everything for himself and returned the people to the rule of Sodom. If they went back to Sodom, it was by their own choice. Sadly, Lot was one of them. He chose to go back to Sodom. We'll talk about that later. For Abram to have been more interested in the substance than in the souls of the people would have made him carnal, but he was not carnal. He was a spiritual man. And this spiritual man sacrificed and he risked everything to restore his erring, erring nephew. Listen, in verse 22 he says, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I lift my hand unto the Lord. 
the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I won't, I won't even take a thread from your shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest thou should say I have made Abraham rich. Save only which the young men have eaten and the portion, of course, which goes to those other young men. Why did Abraham refuse the spoil from this victory? Why did he refuse the spoil? Because he did not want to give any man the credit for what he had obtained. He wanted God to get the credit. He wanted God to get the glory. For it was God who gave him the promise. And what God has promised, he is more than able to bring to pass. And thus, instead of grabbing for the possessions, he raises his hands to the Lord in praise and thanksgiving. Do you know why we do that when we worship the Lord? We do it because we're saying, Lord, I surrender to you. Remember the old guys with a mask, you know, come up behind you and say, stick them up. Well, the Lord didn't come from behind us. He comes right before us and he says, come to me. If we surrender, he'll give us everything we need. For life, godliness, and for eternity. What a great lesson for us. Abraham does allow, uh, does allow those who went with him to partake of the spoil from the victory as they were entitled to. But he said, I will not. He had victory over the wiles of the devil. It's late. I need to close with this, but I'm going to give it to you full on. It's 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 12. Because Paul says about this very attitude of heart. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Did anybody uh, here remember when you were born? Well, let me just let you know, you, you don't remember when you were born, but I can tell you this. When you came into this world, you didn't bring anything but a, a very strong lung that said, ah, you know. That's about it. That's all you brought into this world. And that's what Paul is saying. And, and certainly we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be with, there with content. But they that, will rid, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish, hurt, foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Sounds like the direction of Lot. You know, this is where he was going. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Listen, just because a person has billions of dollars doesn't mean they're happy. Just doesn't mean they're happy. It doesn't mean that they know that they're going to be able to have that for the rest of their existence. And they just, most of the time, they don't even know they have an existence beyond this life here. What are they going to do with all that money? Well, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Oh, stop there. Have you laid hold on eternal life? I'm not talking about just knowing a little bit about Jesus or knowing a little bit about God or knowing a little bit about the Holy Spirit. You know, because that's what we think that's church. We go to church just to learn a little bit about God. No, you come here to worship the God who created you. And you come here to say, Lord, I need fellowship with you. And we do so together as a body to say we together as a church, we need you. This isn't, this isn't an exercise in futility. If you've only come here and go and you didn't take anything with you, you need to, you need to examine your heart, folks. Because that's not why we come here. There is a God who deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. 
We need to lay hold on eternal life. That means if, if God has provided eternal life through Jesus Christ, through the death of Christ, through the blood of Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we need to lay hold on it, which means we need to hold on to it. We need to grab it. We need to hold on to it, just like the woman held on to the hem of Jesus' garment and said, I'm not letting go. That's what eternal life is for us. Because again, we don't know what's going to happen when we leave this place today. And I've held you hostage. I've kept you longer than normal. But folks, it's good reason. I don't want you to leave here without Jesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. There's so much that we need to cover next week about Melchizedek, but, but you can't help but see the refreshment that Melchizedek brought to Abraham. The bread and the wine are the elements of communion. Yes, but Abraham looked forward in communion to the cross of Jesus Christ, even as you and I look back upon it. And while we observe communion as an ordinance in the church, in the broader sense, having immediate, intimate, daily fellowship and communion with God is the life and the joy of the spiritual Christian. I want you to leave here a spiritual Christian, not a carnal Christian, a spiritual Christian. That is the normal Christian life, folks, to be spiritual. Not spiritually high-minded as if we think we know everything. We don't. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. But I know one thing. God has given us His Spirit, and He's given us His Word, and we need to walk by His Spirit and by His Word. So those who are carnal may take communion in the church. You see, next time we have communion, please understand this. Don't just take it because we take it and then it's over, you know, the service. Those who are carnal may take communion in the church, but they do not have immediate, intimate, daily fellowship and communion with God. But the carnal Christian is taken captive of Sodom. That's Lot. The spiritual Christian takes communion in Salem. And what is Salem, folks? Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace. Are you taking your communion in peace with the Prince of Peace? Lastly, may we be content with what God has given to us and learn to walk by faith, trusting in the Lord and not trying to pursue human measures for success through fleshly methods. God will bless as he sees fit and then he gets the glory as it comes to pass. So let love flow from our lives. Let God shine through our lives as we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray.